You're listening to the Asia Geopolitics Podcast. I'm your host, Ankit Panda, recording from Washington, D.C. I'm delighted to have Joseph Dempsey joining me today. Uh, Joe, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ankit. Good to be here. Uh, so Joe is a research associate for defense and military analysis at the International Institute for Strategic Studies in London. Uh, he's one of the foremost open source analysts working on conventional, nuclear, and all things military hardware. And the reason I'm actually particularly delighted to have Joe on today is to talk about developments in the past six weeks or so on the Korean Peninsula. And when I say Korean Peninsula, I am talking about both Koreas. Uh, so as perhaps many of our listeners are aware, uh, there has been a lot of military activity uh, in both Koreas recently. In September 2021, uh, North Korea carried out four different missile tests over four weeks. Um, and at least in my recollection, I can't recall a more qualitatively diverse month of missile testing in North Korean history than what we witnessed in September 2021. So we'll talk a little bit about the developments we saw in North Korea. Uh, but that very same month in South Korea, we saw the introduction of a whole range of um, new capabilities. Some of these systems had been tested earlier and were simply publicized by the South Korean government in September 2021. But in broad strokes, we have um, important developments uh, relevant to the military balance on the Korean Peninsula um, in, in both Koreas. And Joe and I will hopefully take you through the significance of some of these developments more broadly. Um, but Joe, before we before we dig in uh, to this question uh, of you know whether there is an arms race on the Korean Peninsula and and what are the factors driving this arms race, let me just very quickly do a little bit of a scene setter uh, for our listeners. And I apologize in advance because this is going to be a lot because there was a lot tested. But just to kind of set the uh, set the mood for today's discussion, here's what we're going to talk about. So in September 2021, on the North Korean side, we have a new long-range cruise missile, apparently nuclear capable a new rail mobile basing mode for short-range ballistic missiles, a new hypersonic boost clad vehicle or a claimed hypersonic boost clad vehicle introduced, and a new surface-to-air missile system tested. And as a bonus, um, North Korea did also host a remarkable defense exhibition uh, in early October where they basically celebrated the entirety of their missile arsenal, uh, really focusing on developments over the last five years mostly. And then turning to the South Korean side, uh, in September 2021, uh, these were some of the capabilities that were either tested or publicized. Uh, the first was the Hyunmu-4 short-range ballistic missile, a ballistic missile with a heavy two-ton conventional payload that manifested as a result of the 2017 modification by the Trump administration to the U.S.-South Korea missile guidelines, which had previously restricted the payload weights that South Korea could assign to its conventional missiles. Uh, the Hyunmu 4-4 submarine launch ballistic missile was tested for the first time, making South Korea the first country to operate a conventionally armed submarine launch ballistic missile. That's a very interesting development, so we'll get into that a bit. South Korea also showed off a supersonic cruise missile with an apparent ramjet. A solid fuel satellite launch vehicle motor test was also carried out, and a new air-to-ground missile was also demonstrated off of KF-15 fighters. So, Joe, there's a lot to talk about here, um, but why don't we begin, I guess, with the higher-level question here before we dig into the, uh, some of these systems. Um, there's been a lot of talk that there's an arms race underway in the Korean Peninsula. What's your take on that? Uh, is there an arms race? What is motivating this arms race, if it exists? Um, well, it's a good question, and certainly there's been a big amount of arms development on both sides of the, of the border. Obviously, you know, we see a lot of North Korean ambitions uh, maturing, shall we say, over, certainly over the last five years that we've all been commenting quite a lot on. So it's no surprise we keep seeing new systems from there uh, and new developments, uh, but even still there, you know, there's always a sense that 
because of limited testing, a lot of these systems are not, so we say, fully formed, fully tested. And there's a big ambiguity about even the ones that we saw, you know, for example, um, more on the four or five year mark, particularly those in 2017, if they ever will become operational, if they're ever fielded or not. So this, rather than kind of concentrating on those, seemingly, uh, what we do see is them kind of being more ambitious and diversifying and modernizing even before necessarily some of the older systems are fielded. So that's an interesting question about where they are then, how much is actually um, substantiated, I guess, in terms of what they can deploy. On the South Korean side, obviously we're seeing, you know, a lot of new ambitions come through. We're seeing a lot of the indigenous defense industries, which have grown a lot, particularly over the last decade or so, coming to form. Um, obviously they're more active on the export market increasingly. So it's not necessarily all for domestic consumption. Uh, and whilst a lot of it is justified publicly because of the increased threat from North Korea, in which case that is an arms buildup, of course, um, not all of it is specifically aimed at North Korea, clearly, particularly some of the systems they've, they've shown recently um, has kind of more regional implications. Right. So, you know, let's just kind of frame the policy frameworks for both of these arms buildups, which I think is important for um, people to appreciate. So, you know, my interpretation, at least, is that we have basically two five-year periods of military modernization ongoing on the Korean Peninsula, um, and it's and it's rather a neat kind of parallel, even if the timelines don't exactly line up. So last year, the South Korean National Assembly uh, assented to a $250 billion, roughly, spending plan over five years known as the Intermediate Term National Defense Plan. This included a lot of the things that have been tested recently, including um, the new submarine-launched ballistic missile, for instance, plans for aircraft carriers, nuclear propulsion submarines, and so forth down the line. And then on the North Korean side, uh, we began 2021 with uh, the Eighth Party Congress of the Workers' Party of Korea, a really important uh, apex event for the ruling Workers' Party in the country. And Kim Jong-un, the North Korean leader, uh, very clearly, and really, I think, in an unprecedented kind of work report, very specifically laid out the kinds of things that he wanted to see developed uh, in this coming period. And lo and behold, many of those capabilities that he mentioned in that report uh, were tested in uh, in September 2021. I think with the exception of the rail mobile missile, which was not explicitly mentioned in that report, uh, everything else was something that Kim Jong-un had outlined uh, aspirations for. So both Koreas, I think, are pushing ahead with these plans. Um, so Joe, I mean, now, you know, sort of digging in a little bit into these capabilities themselves, um, you know, you've I think you've injected a, a necessary dose of reality into uh, at least the North Korean side here, which is that we've seen a remarkable diversity of North Korean testing and platforms, basing modes even now with rail mobility. Of the new systems tested, which seems the most significant to you and the most likely to meaningfully alter the, um, the military balance on or around the Korean peninsula in the coming years? Good question. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think... I think all the four systems we've seen tested since September, you know, there are caveats to apply to those. So it depends, you know, about how capable they actually are, where they are in terms of development and what they do. Um, I think, to be honest, the cruise missile one is probably the most significant, I would say, mm -hmm. um, because it is probably the biggest diversification, I guess, from their traditional ballistic missile systems. Um, obviously, there's caveats to apply to cruise missile because, yes, it can, well, if we take North Korea's claim you know, as given, it can fly 100, uh, sorry, 1,500 kilometers. 
Now, obviously, but we should be careful of signing capabilities. We signed to you know more contemporary cruise missiles, particularly in terms of you know how low is able to fly to the ground. Well, before we get into that, things. do you mind just do you mind just laying out the differences sure, between sorry. cruise and ballistic missiles and why North Korea might want a cruise missile? Sure, of course. Um, yeah, so ballistic missiles obviously um, kind of follow a ballistic trajectory, kind of go up high and then go down. Typically, obviously, there are some caveats around that with quasi ballistic missiles, which North Korea has also developed, of course. Um, whereas cruise missiles, you know, can be launched, um, they're, they're slower, um, but they do fly typically uh, or associated with, you know, low flying, potentially easier to avoid um, any defenses because they can be pre programmed run flight routes uh, to make it difficult to detect and engage. They also have the ability to go, you know, circumvent routes as well which ballistics don't, they are more of a traditional straight line. So it kind of opens up some opportunities, particularly um, against um, South Korean investment in anti-missile defense systems, which are, when I say anti-missile defenses, right. I'm talking ABM, anti-ballistic missile defense specifically. Although, of course, they will have some cruise missile, um, anti-cruise missile capabilities inherently. Uh, but it just makes it a more diverse um, delivery system. More delivery system options, which you know pose challenges, as do a lot of the other systems to South Korean planners. Right, and you know, I mean, cruise missiles aren't new for North Korea, right? I mean, they they operated um, Soviet origin KH thirty five cruise missiles for some years, but I think what's notable here, Joe, as you as you reminded us, is the order of magnitude improvement on range, at least claimed. Uh, Fifteen hundred yep. kilometers brings North Korea's new cruise missile into the same league as the Tomahawk, the Caliber, some of the longer range systems out there. Uh, and of course, the North Korean claim that this is a, quote, strategic weapon. Uh, and for uh, listeners, uh, strategic is a euphemism uh, that North Korea tends to use when it wants um, the outside world to appreciate that a certain system is nuclear capable. And there are questions there, of course, with uh, whether, uh, you know, North Korea has made great strides with making its nuclear warheads more compact, but uh, just spatially and in terms of weight and center of gravity uh, issues, there are different challenges associated with developing a nuclear warhead for a cruise missile. So I think the jury's still out on that. Um, no, but Joe, I thought that was a, you know, a great explanation of why the North Koreans might look to a cruise missile. And I think that goes into one of the big themes that we've seen in North Korean weapons development uh, and testing, uh, really going back to 2019 uh, and um, the period after the Hanoi summit, which is that many of the new North Korean systems that have been tested have a very big focus on stressing and defeating uh, existing missile defenses in South Korea. So th the North Koreans are developing an array of systems that create an array of planning challenges for the missile defense mission in South Korea. Uh, and, uh, you know, I mean, with cruise missiles in particular, I think, you know, I think the most important thing, and you highlighted this, uh, is the ability for cruise missiles effectively to function like aircraft and um come to South Korean targets from angles of attack that would simply not be possible with ground-based ballistic missiles, which would just have to travel north to south. A cruise missile could fly out into the Sea of Japan, turn around, and approach South Korea from, let's say, the east. Uh, and, um, of course, you know, a lot depends on the kind of seeker and, and guidance technology that the North Koreans have, which I think is difficult to assess at this point, given the data that we have. Um, can we talk a little bit about the rail mobile missile launch? Because I thought this yeah. was fascinating. Uh, tell us a little bit about it, it why is. they might worry about Yeah, rail well, rail just, just kind of touch on something you said first, though. Yeah. I think, you know, the term strategic, yeah, it has traditionally been used with, say, what we assume is nuclear capable. I kind of wonder the fact that it's applied to cruise missiles such big range that they may also partially implying the range. So there's some caveats applying to that or a, a note of caution. And obviously, you know, another thing that was mentioned at the... Um, the party congress was of course the development of tactical nuclear weapons so you know put those two things together that have appeared 
Um, it also opens a range of a whole new range of potentially, if they are able to miniaturize warheads to that degree, it opens up the dual capability possibility of a lot of other different systems that we've seen as well. Right. Now, those are both um, great additions. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, just on the the rail based SRBM. So we we generally assume that the the missile itself is a KN twenty three, which we saw first shown in twenty nineteen. So it's a short range ballistic missile. It looks like the Russian Iskander system. Uh, and I say looks like because obviously there's some caveats to play over where the origins are. And we don't quite know that, of course. Uh, but it has similar capabilities in terms of its you know short range solid propelled missile. Um, it performs kind of a quasi-ballistic trajectory, which means that, um, well, in the case of the KN-23, it does like a pull-up maneuver near the end to, um, well, not to say extend range, but also it's not a typical trajectory, uh, which also makes it kind of hard to track uh, and engage. It gives new challenges. Not impossible, but it gives a more challenging engagement environment. The rail side of things, well, it's the first time we've actually seen a rail mobile system Historically, all North Korea's ground-based systems have been road mobile, and that's been obviously an important part of it. They never really went the silo route. It's always been road mobile. Um, they certainly have some problems doing large road mobile systems, and that's still an area of ambiguity. Um, I've heard there was some reports that, you know, historically that North Korea was looking towards rails this is the first time we've seen it. And it's it's interesting about why they've done this and how they've done it so far. Um, and they've indicated that you know this is not this is um, this this unit size is going to grow over time. Right. So this is you know something that's not just a test. It seems that they are going to move forward with this in one form or another. For rail, it's interesting. So they showed it very much in a converted box car, which I believe is of Chinese origin. Um, so you know it's just converted civilian box car, and they can fit it all in apparently. So yeah, that element of concealment is quite key because it probably won't look as obvious as a tell moving around on the road. Um, the fact it's rail mobile means it can be moved around fairly quickly across the country because they have a very well-established rail network that is mo more than likely a much better condition than their road system. Um, and obviously they can um, also control the road, sorry, the rail more than the road potentially. Mm -hmm. There's plenty of tunnels they can hide it in, of course. It's not as mobile as a road system, of course, but you know it, it's kind of like there's different payoffs depending which which way you go. The curious thing about this system is, at least while they've started it, is why they're using it for a short range system. I agree. Yep. When we look at other countries who've gone the rail mobile route, you know, um, certainly um, Russia historically, India currently with one of their systems. Uh, they focus more on the, the large strategic systems. And, you know, when you look at it for what North Korea has challenges in developing road mobile tells uh, of the ICBM kind of category, uh, again, there's some ambiguity around that still, um, but it would make sense to do a longer, sorry, um, mount the ICBMs on rail mobile. However, it's not necessarily suited for what the current generation of North Korean ICBMs, which are still liquid fueled and that poses new challenges because you still have to carry around um you know fuel trucks which obviously could be rail mounted but the concealment element gets a lot less um impactful when you're starting to do big convoys of you know um, a huge tell trailer right. which is gonna be massive anyway plus fuel tanks associated with lots of other systems so it, the concealment element goes 
uh, as is the you know the pre element of pre-fueling. Um, also, when you look at the large cradles they have to do for road mobile missiles uh, for the ICBMs, they're huge in terms of the hydraulics and stuff. So actually, be able to fit that into a box car, there's new challenges. So I think uh, you know long term we might see more solid fuel based systems uh, for North Korea, but I think obviously until they get to where they want to be with a solid fueled ICBM, we're not going to see that kind of categorization yet. Right. Well, so, you know, I, I would have agreed entirely with everything you just said on the limitations with liquid propellant systems. Um, but here, you know, I think we should transition a little bit to talk about the Hwasong-8 glider. Uh, yes. There's a lot to talk about there. I mean, not, you know, a lot of people focused on the pointy end of that missile because hypersonic things are exciting and very much in vogue internationally. And I think that's part of the reason North Korea is actually pursuing these weapons. Um but what was interesting, and this is going to get a little bit in the weeds, and I apologize to listeners, uh, is the North Korean claim of uh, introducing, and this is a bit of jargon from Soviet missile history, not really relevant, but ampulization uh, to their liquid propellant missiles. And that's an, that's an interesting and significant development if it means what I think it means, which is that they are experimenting uh, with, uh, you know, storable propellants for long-term um, operation, which means that one of those limitations that we'd long sort of pointed out about liquid propellant missiles, which is that, yeah, you know, they need fuel trucks and oxidizer uh, trucks, uh, which generate huge satellite signatures, may be um, modified in the future. And that also opens up possibilities, not only for rail mobility, uh, but also for canisterizing um, longer range uh, liquid propellant missiles, right? But um, let's not get too far into the, de uh, you know, into the weeds on that, because, you know, it is, it is a very kind of... Um, I guess, ambiguous issue because we don't exactly know what the North Koreans mean for the moment. Um, but, you know, before we move on to South Korea, I do want to talk about the glider a little bit. Um, so my interpretation of this test, uh, which the South Koreans released uh, some data on, um, is that, you know, it, it wasn't fully successful. And the statement from the North Korean Academy of Defense Science, I think, was pretty moderate in the language used to talk about the glider. They actually focus a lot more on the on the fuel and the ampulization that they did on the flight success of the glider itself. Uh, but what's your take on, you know, this, uh, this hypersonic system? Is this a technology demonstrator? Is this going to be a niche capability? Or uh, is this something you might expect the North Koreans to continue testing and refining? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of questions. I think there's more questions than answers, unfortunately, on this point, on the, what a Hawasong 8 is and what it demonstrates and what it will demonstrate. Uh, I think just touching on the ambulization side of things a little bit, it is interesting and, you know, it could be one question I have is how long have they developed this system? Because the name, Hawasong 8, uh, we don't know if it applies, by the way, to the the booster, the the, the glide vehicle, or both. Uh, assuming it applies to maybe the, the, the booster section, which could be a, based on the Hawasong 12 IRBM, because it's 8 is a number we've long missed in the Hawasong series, I haven't been able to assign, and we're now up to 17. So this system could have been going on for a while, and this could have been an alternative route they looked at to address the, the historic weaknesses of the liquid fuel missiles. And the fact they're returning to it, you know, could be related to they may still be having some problems developing the longer range solids. So it's interesting to see where they go with this, but I think it may have more, the more might be more history behind that than we know. Mm -hmm. um, touching on the HDV, hypersonic glide vehicle, they claim to be a hypersonic glide vehicle. I mean, it's probably one of the most ambitious things they've done. Um, and not that I dismiss North Korean ambition, because that would be foolish over the last five years to do so. Um, but massive caveat supply. You know, hypersonic glide vehicles have been around a lot. They, they are literally hyped very much so, particularly Russian and Chinese and US in developments of that. But they are hard things to do properly and make capable. And, you know, for example, you know, we don't even know that North Korea has the, the on-ground facilities to test these systems, particularly a hypersonic wind tunnel. 
Um, so what they are doing and what they showed us, it's very much debatable. The, the, the test is very ambiguous as well um, because it only went, well, from the South Korean estimates of what they did release, we're talking um, 200 kilometer range, so very short range. And we're talking, and I think mixed reports is either 60 kilometers or 30 kilometer apogee. Right. Either way, it's a very shallow test at very short range. What that picked up upon was that's just the booster. Yeah. Whether it's the, the, the when the cap, that figure capsulates the glide vehicle separation or a failure is very much unknown. And it's also very much unclear what the parameters of the test were meant to be from North Korea. Because, you know, if you're doing an initial test of a hypersonic glide vehicle and booster, yeah, a short range test might make sense the first time to, to test separation. But North Korea don't test often, so they tend not to do half measures. Right. I mean, you know, with a with a hypersonic system too. Um, so, I mean, just for listeners, by the way, the way a hypersonic glider works is very much like a ballistic missile. Uh, the booster will carry the glider to high altitudes outside the Earth's atmosphere. The glider will separate, descend, re-enter the Earth's atmosphere, and then begin aerodynamically gliding to its target, spending most of its flight time in unpowered gliding flight, unlike a ballistic missile, which would spend most of that time outside the Earth's atmosphere. But what that means for North Korea is that, unlike their older practice of using so-called lofted trajectories, where they would launch ballistic uh, re-entry vehicles on incredibly sharp angles to shorten their range to avoid overflying Japan, mostly, most of the time, I mean, they did overfly Japan a few times with full-range tests, uh, they simply can't do that with a hypersonic glider if they want to get any kind of useful data. They would have to fly it to, if not full range, uh, to a much longer range than uh, an equivalent ballistic reentry vehicle. So that's a challenge. And, you know, I mean, Joe, I think I, you know, I, I agree with your um, measure skepticism, uh, and I also agree with your, you know, general principle about not underestimating the North Koreans. My interpretation of this test is that it was mostly about the booster, uh, because I do think that they consider uh, the the introduction of this ampulization technology to be significant. The glider is a way to, I think, uh, you know, get attention. I'm sure, you know, Park Jong Chong or any of these, uh, you know, defense scientists in North Korea probably convinced Kim Jong Un that he needs a hypersonic glider to cope with missile defenses. Uh, you know, spoiler alert: he doesn't actually need a hypersonic glider to cope with missile defenses. There are lots of ways for North Korea uh, to stress um, missile defenses in the United States and South Korea and Japan. Uh, they have the existing capabilities to do this, but um, it is an ambitious, uh, you know, um, a technology program. Uh, I mean, just to compare, I mean, in China. You know, before uh, China's first glider system, the DF-17, um, began operational testing, there were scores of hypersonic wind tunnel tests, scores of other tests just to rate the glider's aerodynamic performance before they ever started testing it on a ballistic missile. So North Korea, I think, you know, I think it's fair to say that North Korea is probably the first country to have tested a hypersonic glider off the bat on a booster like this, uh, because other countries have done this, uh, you know, with a significant lead period on R&D, on ground-based facilities. Um, but anyways, we are sort of running out of time, so I do want to move on a little bit to talk a bit about South Korea. Um, so, you know, I, I talked a little bit about the capabilities that the South Koreans have been introducing in the last few weeks. The Hyunmoo-4 uh, heavy payload precision short-range ballistic missile, the first conventional uh, submarine-launched ballistic missile, um, the new supersonic cruise missile. Um, tell us a little bit about the doctrinal needs for these kinds of systems in South Korea. You know, I mean, here I'm kind of leading you towards talking a bit about overwhelming response or, or Korea massive punishment and retaliation. I mean, uh, these things are really how the South Koreans justify their pursuit of many of these systems. Can you uh, sort of break down for our listeners, you know, what, what those are? Um, yes, of course. So one of the kind of key doctrines of um, 
South Korea's responses to uh, North Korean missiles and potential North Korean missile strike on them. Um, actually, it fits into two, I would say. So one is the overwhelming response so that if they are attacked, they can retaliate massively and they can, you know, they will take out missile, uh, they will take out military facilities, but also the leadership. So, you know, having almost like a second strike capability, albeit a conventional one. Um, so we're talking about, you know, mobile systems, particularly the SLBM side of things, because obviously it's a lot harder to target a submarine based system. Um, the, um, but also, I think, in fairness, a lot of the stuff that they've, they've demonstrated um, recently also fits into the kind of the preemptive strike area, which is almost a, the first aspect where they they wish to be able to respond very quickly to an impending strike. You have both intelligence assets to, to, to identify it, but then to strike it quickly. So you've also got, you know, other systems which are um, harder to, to target. So they've got, you know, development of a new air launch cruise missile, for example. The SLBM could also be used in that sense as well. The SLBM also could be used uh, as a preemptive strike. Uh, and it has some advantages, particularly about, you know, because they can already, before we knew this was an official program, because I should point out that until we actually had this acknowledgement last month that they'd done it, South Korea had never officially acknowledged an SLBM program or an SSB, so the boat carrying it program. They never acknowledged that at all. We kind of knew, but it's interesting that the first notice we had is essentially when they had an operational boat, albeit maybe not quite an operational missile to mount on it. So the one advantage of using SLBM over cruise missiles, even submarine based, is that it might be able to target something quicker because it travels a lot quicker, essentially. Mm -hmm. And you know, those vital minutes uh, are very important when you're looking to preempt a strike. Right, right. And so, you know, when we look at the balance of developments on the South Korean side, a lot of this I think is also taking place in a context where South Korea, at least for South Korean progressives, um, you know, uh, there is a pursuit here of added so-called missile sovereignty. That was a big feature of uh, President Moon's summit <clears throat> with President Biden earlier this year when the um, U.S. ROK revised missile guidelines, uh, which had prescribed South Korea's range uh, and payload, uh, well, payload before 2017, were, were formally scrapped. So there's no more limitations on South Korea apart from its, um, you know, obligations on, uh, you know, non-binding, non-proliferation requirements like the MTCR and so forth. Um, and apart from that, you know, there is also South Korea is pursuing many of these capabilities to also facilitate um, wartime operational control transfer, uh, which is also an important issue, particularly. Uh, I mean, it's an important issue for conservatives and progressives alike in South Korea. Uh, so, you know, uh, just that added political context, I think, is worthwhile. Um, the conventional SLBM, you know, has raised eyebrows, understandably, about potential nuclear hedging by South Korea, because as you pointed out, um, this is an unusual um, it is an, it's an unusual strategy, uh, given South Korea's strategic predicament. Uh, you know, South Korea is in the odd position and the unenviable position of trying to deter a nuclear-armed North Korea while um, remaining a non-nuclear weapon state. Uh, so South Korea is not pursuing nuclear weapons today. Um, but it is, uh, you know, one of the trends in South Korean missile development is this very strong emphasis on uh, heavy conventional payloads. Uh, and in the South Korean press, you'll often see a comparison that many of these new missiles are similar to tactical nuclear weapons, which is a ridiculous claim because we're, we're very far off from tactical nuclear weapon yields with these conventional systems. Uh, but it is worth highlighting that, uh, you know, what you said about assuring retaliation, the South Koreans are very much seeking to do that uh, with a range of increasingly more survivable uh, platforms. 
but you know, I mean, Joe, just to just to close out today's discussion, um, you know, I think I think uh, you know we've we've gone through this wide range of developments, or, and this is all again, you know, just over the last six weeks, so just a remarkable period uh, on the Korean Peninsula. When it comes to sort of stemming this arms race, um, I mean, where where can we even you know where can we even begin? Where can the two Koreas even begin to you know go with uh, you know? risk reduction, threat reduction, um, or, you know, is this arms race going to uh, continue for the next few years? What's your uh, assessment? Um, good question, Ankit. Uh, I hope they won't continue at the same pace it has done for the last six weeks, because I that's too unsustainable just for me and you, at the very least. Um, yeah, it's a tricky one. So, I mean, South Korea is more sustainable and it's more credible in what they're showing um, and can be taken as a given, but it also raises, as you kind of touched upon, wider concerns about what the end game is here and where this comes the precedence it sets because some of the systems they developed you know could follow on to other areas so for example you know there's always a discussion that the of nuclear submarines for south korea and particularly in light of the australian deal that's going to raise questions about you know cooperation with south korea particularly for um, america um the sorry the the taking out the 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 missile um, range and payload limitations, obviously it does impact North Korea, but also it raises concerns beyond there. Because when you're talking about missiles with capabilities over a thousand kilometers, you're, you know, yes, you can hit North Korea from anywhere in South Korea, but you can also, you know, target major capitals of Tokyo and, you know, Beijing. That also falls in range. And even some of the systems they've showed, the example, the, the, the supersonic cruise, uh, sorry, supersonic anti-ship missile was another system that they showed. In my mind, there's very little need for that against North Korea, who have very few, you know, principal surface combatants. So, right. you know, decent sized warships that you'd actually justify the missile with no defenses really against even a subsonic missile. So it does raise some questions about, you know, not all these systems are inherently against, inherently counter North Korea. Right. The yeah. North Korean side of things is less credible, I think, because we're not going to see all these systems fully developed if they uh, and we might see some you know as you say is the hypersonic glide vehicle a real thing um and you know we've seen the diversification then probably settle on a couple of systems to fully develop but you know when you look at what's happened in the last five years we've seen systems that have fallen out of favor or didn't work and then moved on um but they're still showing us that track pathway i think obviously by showing all these diverse systems it gives them more options to talk and negotiate about what they are willing to give up if they come back to the table. Right. I think, uh, yeah, I think for the North Koreans, you know, leverage at the diplomatic table is always part of the story. I think that's one of the lessons Kim Jong-un might have taken away from the 2018-2019 experience, which is that um, despite initial perceptions, the capabilities they demonstrated by the end of 2017 simply weren't sufficient uh, to bring the United States to, to um, concede the things that the North Koreans wanted. Uh, so I think, you know, that is a big part of what's happening here. Um, but Joe, uh, you know, I, I suspect, um, you know, before long, we will have more to talk about on the Korean Peninsula missile front. Um, so, but, you know, I do want to thank you so much for uh, coming on today and uh, and sharing your insights. Always learn a lot from your work. So this was um, good to have you on. I can't believe I haven't had you on the show before. Uh, but uh, thanks a lot for taking the time today. No, you're very welcome. It's been a pleasure to be on. Thank you.